Warning, the following broadcast is not intended to be a substitute for legal advice or firearm safety, competence, or proficiency training. This broadcast is solely for entertainment, discussion, and informational purposes. Side effects may include a sudden undeniable urge to exercise your Second Amendment rights, and you may in fact turn into a gun nut. You've been warned. And welcome to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. I'm Jose Morales with... Mike Jeremita. Welcome back, everybody. And today's topic is going to be, because you can own it doesn't make it legal. Now, I've thought about this a whole lot, Mike. We've had lots of people in our classes at Philly Firearms Academy ask questions about, well, you know, if I go to a gun show, can I pick up X, Y, and Z, or can I buy A, B, and C and just add it onto my gun? And the more I read through the BATFE handbook, um, all, I think, 2,000 pages of it, it's all mm. downloadable online, I see, you know, there are lots of areas where we can become unwitting felons. Sure, sure. And just because it's at home in your sock drawer in your closet or something doesn't mean that you're okay. Just because you're not somebody who goes and purchases things out of the back of somebody's trunk in an alleyway doesn't mean that you're, uh, you're following the law. So that's something that people need to pay attention to. Uh, make yourself familiar with these laws. Make yourself familiar with, like you said, all of uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosive Regulations, particularly when it comes to NFA items and things of that nature. And don't be so quick to take somebody else's word for it. And something can actually be a restricted NFA item, and we not necessarily know about it, right? Some of these braces um, for uh, attachment onto your rifles. I think I also see, like, adapters and, you know. Right. You can modify those braces in such a way that they can become subject to the National Firearms Act and require you to go through the entire process of, uh, you know, filling out the paperwork, registering the item, and ultimately paying the tax and receiving proof of that tax known as a tax stamp. So the, the one of the problems with that is that over the years, ATF reversed course quite a few times, so sometimes people aren't quite sure what their most recent opinion was. But even in its present state, while it's not as restrictive as it used to be, there are things you can do to those braces to render an item subject to the National Firearms Act. So that's just a, a, one of the examples of, of the kind of things that you can do to ultimately end up in trouble. Well, and YouTube doesn't help either. I mean, I, I've noticed a lot, especially when uh, when the uh, these rifle braces that were um, they came out. I guess maybe about three years ago, four years ago, they became really popular, where it uh, allows individuals that own a uh, a an AR pistol or rifle to actually mount a brace to shoot it one handed. Um, uh, people were just adding them onto their guns saying, hey, I essentially have an SBR, you know, and a lot of the, which is short, you know, uh, an acronym for, I guess, short-barreled rifle. Correct. Um, which fall under very specific regulations uh, um, at, the, uh, at the hands of the ATF, right, the BATFE, right? Yeah, that was one of them, uh, and ATF released a couple of different opinions on it. Most recently, just because it has the brace does not make it a short-barreled rifle. Uh, at one point, they said that you can change what it is just by the way you're using it, which didn't make any sense. Can you change what something is just by the way you're positioning it? That would be uh, kind of complicated. But even if you have 
what is a brace on what is a pistol. You can modify that brace in such a way that makes it redesigned to be fired from the shoulder, which is their criteria, and ultimately uh, that makes it subject to the NFA. So there are still things you can do with those braces. While it's perfectly lawful to go to the store and purchase that brace, that'll render your fight- firearm subject to the NFA. And if you if you're possessing it without having gone through the proper procedures, then you're doing something that could end you up in jail. And again, we mentioned NFA a couple of times. That's the National Firearms Act. The National Firearms Act of 1934. For those of us unfamiliar, it's the first uh, piece of federal legislation restricting our gun rights in this country. And essentially what they did back then, they thought Congress thought there was no way that they could have the authority to regulate firearms. So they imposed it as a taxing scheme. And essentially they took all these items. It was a knee-jerk response to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. They took these items like fully automatic weapons, short-barreled rifles, meaning barrel length less than 16 inches over. Sawed-off shotguns. 26 inches, right? (laughs) Short-barreled shotguns, barrel length less than 18 inches, overall length less than 26 inches. And you've got other categories uh, called any other weapon, destructive devices. Uh, You've got your silencers, suppressors things of that nature so these items got put into this category and essentially uh, in order to lawfully own one you had to go through a process with the federal government and now it's done through an agency we're all familiar with the Bureau of Alcohol Tobacco Firearms and Explosives we commonly call it the ATF and you'll register the item and you'll ultimately pay a tax and they'll send you proof that you've paid that tax in the form of what's called a tax stamp. And that's your proof that you've complied with the NFA by paying that tax. Uh, back then, the amount that they imposed for the tax was essentially cost prohibitive. And, you know, right, it, it was like $200 it, in 1934. And actually, I did, I did some of the math. Right. Okay. So back in 1934, $200 was about uh, equal to about $3,500 in today's kind of currency uh-huh. for cost of living and stuff. So mm, who could afford that $200 tax stamp back then? Uh, really not a lot of folks. Uh, Remember, my dad always said, you know, hot dogs were a nickel when I was here. (laughs) (laughs) And he walked both ways barefoot. Yeah. Over glass. That's that's the way I, uh, that's the way I always think about it. But you've also, you know, average vehicle for a family back then, of course, they think it was around $500. So that gives you a little bit of perspective. Imagine paying a tax for uh, an item uh, under the NFA that costs half as much as your car costs. I mean, that's not feasible for most families today, let alone back then. So um, one thing is that it hasn't changed over the years, so now it's a the little bit more. The cost hasn't changed, right? The cost hasn't changed, right? Uh, although I wouldn't put it past them to revisit that at some point. Some people were <laughs> concerned over the last eight years with the previous administration that that would be an issue, although fortunately it wasn't. So you've got to go through these processes in order to own items covered under the National Firearms Act. And particularly when you get in the category of any other weapon, that can be pretty confusing. There are a lot of different items that can qualify as any other weapon. Now, have you had any experience with these in your time in the field? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But but one of the most interesting things is you can get a a vertical foregrip, a folding vertical foregrip. Uh Um, It costs about $30, Mm -hmm. right? And you can actually place them on the uh, accessory rail of your pistol. Right? Mm. But the moment that you do, 
and you <laughs> then, then and you didn't you know apply for that two hundred dollar tax stamp for the privilege of placing that foregrip on that pistol, you've just converted that pistol from a handgun right to an any other weapon. Yeah. yeah. And what kind of scares me is that you know you, we can go to these gun uh, shows and we can purchase these items. And totally innocently say, oh, it's kind of cool. Wow, you know, maybe watch a movie or something and not do our due diligence because no one really kind of tells us these little loopholes. And the moment that we place that um, accessory on that gun, um, we're felons. Just like placing, I guess, a stock on a a pistol to make right. it a short-barreled rifle. Now, right. they have these adapters, interestingly enough. They're about 35 bucks. You can buy the adapter, and the adapter lets you mount a stock on an AR-15, a rifle stock, on a collapsible stock, but the moment that you go on ahead and place that on your pistol, <laughs> that's another $200 tax stamp that you would have to pay just for the luxury of having that stock because you're converting, right? You're converting that pistol into a, an, any other weapon. Right, and this is the problem with a lot of these things is that you purchase each individual component lawfully, uh, but once you put them together, that's when you run into a serious problem. Um, one thing I've heard with the, the braces recently is that people are buying i don't know if they're foam or if they're plastic or what material they're made of but you can sort of fill them up and permanently make them sort of like a stock right Right. you're making it as close to a stock as possible and that and you can end up in trouble if they determine that ultimately you were redesigning the weapon to be fired from the shoulder now you've got two different forms that you'd have to fill out if you want to comply with the NFA, your form one is if you're making an NFA item and your form four is if you're purchasing the item and it's, you know, NFA compliant state already. So that would be if you're going to the store and you're buying from a licensed dealer, a suppressor or silencer or something of that nature. And then you've got uh, the Form 1, for example, I had a client who had this old Maverick 88. Do you remember them? Yeah, the shotgun? The, the mod, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Model 88. Uh, and, Good gun. Uh, well, yeah, you know, it does the job. And he, you know, it was his least expensive firearm, something he got early on, and he had gone on to own Benelli's and, and real deal stuff. So he decided he wanted to have a little fun and chopped down the, the 88. So we filled out the Form mm. 1 and applied to you know essentially make an nfa item and then we did it through his trust and ultimately everything was approved smooth sailing and now he's got a short barreled shotgun interesting but he had to follow the letter of the law correct right yeah i mean it's crazy because what does it take to chop a couple of inches off i mean my my remington 870 express it's got an 18 inch barrel you know, what would it take for me to chop a half inch off of that? A and, hacksaw. Uh, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you're, you're talking about something that will get you years and years and years in prison. Huh. Well, on the other side of the break, we're going to continue on because this is actually really interesting, Mike. Hi, Jose Morales here. Mike and I want to take a minute to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to us. If you find the broadcast interesting or informative, please tell others about us and consider showing your support either by becoming a patron on Patreon or through a donation on PayPal via the links at LockedLoadedAndLegal.com. Thanks again and stay safe. (music) 
So before the break, we were talking a little bit about NFA items and purchasing and creating um, NFA um, regulated firearms and the pitfalls that you know we can inadvertently uh, you know fall um, victim to by not knowing the laws. And you know it's really interesting because back in our grandparents, great grandparents' age, they can actually go to the local hardware store. Mm. They could pick up, let's say, uh, a Tommy gun. And a case of dynamite, right? It's <laughs> a party in some states, right? America. <laughs> America has liberty there, right? And they were absolutely, you know, absolutely within their rights to be able to do that. And then uh, in 1934, right, that $200 tax stamp, the ATF, uh, you know, the National Firearms Act was enacted. And now, whoa, they had to pay 200 bucks for the luxury of being able to f- uh, purchase that fully automatic um, firearm and you know it's interesting even to this day how few people realize that those um, assault rifles um, those fully automatic selective fire guns were hev- are heavily regulated and have been regulated since 1934 mm. you know so if you want to purchase that fully automatic right it's, it's going to cost you three times as much as a modern sporting rifle anyway at least you have to pay that $200 tag stamp oh. Forget and then, it. And, yeah, and then go through the, the hassle of waiting at least uh, seven months, eight months, a year, right? Now, don't even think about putting a suppressor because you have to pay another $200, right? <laughs> Apply for that. Wait a $1,000 you know, later, get you. So it can get really, really pricey. Well, the primary practical issue with fully automatic weapons that uh, we were slapped at the Hughes Amendment in 1986, and this was added as an addendum or an amendment to the, the Firearm Owners Protection Act, and... Essentially, Reagan signed this in while everybody was sleeping. It prohibited the most forms of possession of lawful, fully automatic weapons manufactured post-86. Huh. Now, did it happen post or pre him being shot? Oh, you know, that that's... Um, you're, you're exposing my lack of knowledge <laughs> when it comes to history. It's got to be pretty late in his term, right? Cause I 86, think it's after, yeah. Yeah, because 86... And then uh, Bush came in in 88, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it was towards the end. So perhaps that was afterwards. But but unfortunately, uh, in doing so, the fact of the matter is every fully automatic weapon that, you know, a common civilian like us can own in, in the United States already exists. And they have existed for over 30 years. Right. Over, so the last 30 years, there's been the same number of fully automatic weapons. And what that does is it drives the price up incredibly. I mean, you're talking well into, you know, tens of thousands of dollars with a lot of these items. And again, like it was with, with the tax at the outset, it becomes cost prohibitive. And it's a shame because uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, is, to my knowledge, there's only ever been one crime committed by someone who was compliant with the NFA. And what I mean by that, we've got all these items owned by people that are fall under the NFA and people go through the process, they pay their tax, they get their tax stamp and they're compliant. Out of all those items, over all these years, to my knowledge, there's only ever been one crime committed and that crime was committed by an off-duty law enforcement officer. With an NFA, legally an purchased NFA, NFA correct, um, item. Correct. Interesting. So that just gives you a little bit of a snippet about uh, you know whether people lawfully owning these items is an issue. You talked about how many times people have this misconception that you know machine guns are flying off the shelves and it takes you a few <laughs> minutes and you know you don't even need a background nah. check or whatever whatever they you say. You want two, take two. Unfortunately, that's that's nothing more than the product of ignorance because we've had these stringent procedures in place for quite some time. 
Absolutely. Quite some time. And again, people just don't realize how time-consuming, expensive, and difficult it is to get an NFA item. I know that I built an SBR. Um, and it a short barrel rifle, and it took me a good, uh, a good, mm, better part of a year to get my paperwork back. I had to get the lower engraved. Uh, I had to, uh, you know, wait until I got approved. I had to make sure that if I went to a range with that with that rifle, that I had my proof of my tax stamp with me. Mm. You know, and uh, again, it really is uh, a pretty long and convoluted process. You know, it, which leads me to my my other point. You know, you can go to a gun store and buy, let's say, a uh, an AR pistol, mm. right? Um, doesn't have a stock, a little buffer tube and such, and it would have an upper that would be I mean, anywhere between, I guess, but 9, 10, 11, 12 inches, below 16 inches. So you can buy a pistol, and you can also, if you own an AR rifle, right, full-size AR rifle, 16-inch barrel, you can literally, right, um, take, take it apart, take the lower from the rifle and put the upper from the SBR on there. And if you didn't know any better, you've just create you've just broken the law. You've created, right, um, an, a, an NFA-regulated item. So just because you have those two, a pistol and a rifle, they're not interchangeable. You have mm-hmm. to go through the process of getting your tax stamp and following the letter of the law. Yeah, and because you can do everything so easily, uh, I think that the problem is that you can unwittingly break the law, become an accidental criminal. It is well worth it to look into these things before you you just <laughs> go ahead, oh, that sounds like fun, and you go ahead and grab it and put it together. Well, you do exactly what I did, right? You go to the BATFE website, right, and you download the BATFE handbook. I, I don't know how many pages that is. It's, no. it's, it's a lot. Yeah. I took it to Staples, and I got it printed and I got it uh, bound just to have a copy and this will tell you you know it'll tell you if you have your you know your great grandfather's shotgun laying around and you go well you know what I'm going to shorten this barrel from a a 26 inch barrel down they have procedures to measure the barrel Mm -hmm. where you actually you know you get a dowel and from the breech face to the end of the barrel and you have to mark it and mm-hmm. you know you can modify it as long as it's within the letter of the law and I believe that shotgun barrels shorter than 18 inches are yeah, subject. Yeah so it's less than 18 inches overall and it's less than 26 inches. Overall length yeah, less than 20 so if that right. stock is a junior stock or has been modified again you can be an be unwilling. Careful. Yeah yeah so. Keep an eye out <laughs> you know there are different things that you could do that can ultimately uh, you know render you in possession of a, an illegal item. And something that you also want to look out for, you had talked about the older generation and along those lines, I have clients who inherit firearms all the time. And when you inherit firearms, one thing you should be sure of before you start selling them off and things is that you don't have anything in that collection that is illegal because Mm. you don't know what grandpa was up to. You don't know if right. if he didn't know when he took a couple of inches off the top <laughs> of one of these things. Um, I, I hear these stories all the time. So, you know, actually make sure you take a look. Make sure everything's lawful before you start doing anything and get yourself in trouble. And even if you decide to say to Travis, hey, I'm going to take my grandfather's shotgun down to a range somewhere. You, and you're traveling right. with this firearm. Right. <laughs> you know, you, that's a whole world of hurt. Yeah, how... how how dare I go directly to, to selling these things? Unfortunately, the the folks who I've dealt with inherited, inheriting these items, you know, usually they're not gun nuts the way we are. So their their first uh, you know course of action is to sell them off, which makes people like us happy. Right, situation. right. Ooh, score. Yeah. But, you know, but, again, you don't want to be in possession of something that's technically not legal. Right. Um, unbeknownst to you. 
you know that's it's a very very simple you know easy mistake to make sure sure just because uh, you know grandpa's had it for all these years don't don't assume that it must have been legal just because it was sitting there in the attic exactly well when in doubt you know maybe call your local gun store um go lawyer. to a, 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 law, a your lawyer law, your lawyer <laughs> <laughs> mike gia ramita and stores don't have malpractice insurance that's true good point good point all right well on the uh, other side of the break we'll continue this very very informative conversation Back with Locked, Loaded, and Legal. When we left earlier, we were talking about um, owning items, and just because you own them doesn't necessarily make them legal. We spoke a little bit about inheriting different items that may be subject to the NFA or may be subject to some other prohibition or restriction, and I recommended that you contact an attorney if you inherit items to make sure that you're good to go. Jose mentioned uh, gun dealers. And I briefly mentioned that, you know, attorney might be the better route to go because, number one, that's their job is to give people advice regarding these kinds of things. And number two, uh, you know, their job is on the line. They've got malpractice insurance, things of that nature. And uh, somebody at a gun store won't be on the hook the way an attorney can. Now, that being said, I think that an FFL, a dealer, can be a useful resource in that if you were to call an FFL, a local dealer, and say, hey, if someone wanted to sell you this kind of an item, right? would you be interested? If they say, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a sign. Yeah, that, that maybe that's a, a sign. It'll be a bad purchase, right? 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 That might be, not be the end of the line for your research. I would not necessarily depend upon them in each and every circumstance, but uh, that might be a good place to start to at least get you pointed in the right direction. Makes sense, Jose? Exactly. No, it's a good starting point. Again, you know, some of our listeners may not have easy access to a competent firearms attorney. Sure. Um, you know, and, and budgets and so on and so forth, they're always considerations. So, you know, I, I most FFLs that I've run into, are legitimate FFLs, are very responsible and are fairly up-to-date and know the, the laws, generally speaking, what's what's uh, prohibited and what isn't, mm-hmm. and they don't want to lose their FFLs, so they sure. they'll definitely guide you in the right direction. And honestly, I know they're not paying; they're obviously not paying us or anything like that. But uh, that's one of the things I love about U.S. Law Shield is beyond the fact that if you're ever involved in a critical incident and you have to have representation throughout that process in the criminal and civil proceedings, is that as a member. You get free legal advice. You get to call in whenever you want and ask these types of questions, and you don't get a bill in the mail. You just pay your regular membership fee every month. So I think that's an an invaluable resource for people in preventing themselves from becoming accidental criminals. Another thing is you could attend the, the seminars free of charge as a member, which is another great 
valuable educational tool. And absolutely. You can actually, if you're in Pennsylvania, you can actually troll Mike Giramita, right? <laughs> Go to all of his uh, his seminars and ask him questions and try to try to do uh, try to stump the chump. Try to ask him a question, right, that he doesn't know the answer to. Good luck, guys. It's not going to happen. But you know, um, all kidding aside, yeah, they are definitely great resources out there, um, U.S. Law Show being one of them, and they don't, uh, you know, they don't finance the show. The show is financed by you guys, by the listeners. Your listenership is what drives us to educate you. We just want to point out where the credit is due to those organizations that do make a difference and are helpful to uh, to gun owners. Sure, and if that's available to our listeners, if available to law-abiding gun owners, then why wouldn't we want to let people know about that? Absolutely, absolutely. One thing that I wanted to mention really quickly too was those little those adapters that let you uh, that you screw onto or you attach to the ends of your rifles so or your handguns, so that you can mount a a an oil uh, an oil filter. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, and because yeah, they make it a those, modified suppressor kind of thing. Those aren't too tough to make, from what I understand, are they? What those uh, those adapters? The, well, the the oil filter suppressors. Well, no, actually, it's, it's an adapter you buy, and it's totally legal to okay, purchase. Okay. I've seen them at gun store, uh, gun shows rather. You buy the adapter for your particular mo- make and model, either handgun or rifle, and uh, you screw it onto the flash uh, to the to the barrel of your your rifle, uh-huh. and or if you have a, a thread adapter um, onto that, and you can screw on an oil can. Okay, yeah, yeah. Got to form one. Got to form one. It just because you can legally buy, uh, you know, the oil can. Yeah, and, and I can like a case of. Uh, yeah, you, you, you put them together. You use that. You're you're in for a world of hurt, as they say. Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, again, do your due diligence. Go to the BATFE website and download their book. Silencers and suppressors are absolutely positively legal. You just have to go through a process to actually purchase them. Uh, also, make sure you're aware of the laws of your state because uh, we live out here in America, Pennsylvania. There we go. I'm sorry. I thought the whole world <laughs> revolved around Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. So, no, absolutely. Check, check with the laws uh, of your state. But here in Pennsylvania, you can purchase a suppressor. And uh, again, you know, it's something that definitely is. Listen, think about it this way, right? Let's say you have to use your handgun in the middle of the night. Um, I don't want to have semi-permanent hearing damage, so I would want a suppressor on my handgun or my rifle because I prefer rifles for home defense guns. Um, why wouldn't I want a suppressor? But if you say that to someone who doesn't know about guns, they go, "Whoa, who do you want to kill?" Because it's a it's a tool of an assassin. You yeah. know, it's yeah. not the case at all. And, and how often do people overlook that? The fact that, God forbid, you had to protect yourself in your home and use your firearm in the middle of the night. It's not like you're going to the range and you're putting on your eyes and your ears and you're setting the target down well, I've the seen lane. some videos, actually, believe it or not, that, that say you should have a set of hearing protection close to your rifle. Right. So, yeah. So that when you you put those bad boys on, maybe some electronic ears and I'm like, wait a second. Why would I put? No, no, that's just an extra (laughs) step. And and that that moment, I don't know that you want that extra step. Yeah. You know, listen, whatever works for you, just think these things have a plan in place prior to needing to use that gun. You know that that would be a good thing. And the uh, you know, and an attorney, uh, a reputable attorney on speed dial. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact is. These suppressors are tools, and and they serve very specific purposes, and they can be valuable tools. Just got to make sure that we go through the process, like you said. Well, there was some rumor about the National Hearing Protection Act and making suppressors legal and yes. such, right? And yes. where, where, where do we stand with that? I'm sure our listeners remember that, and it looked like it was set to go through. Unfortunately, we had 
a tragedy pop up right right around the time when they were supposed to vote. I believe it was Vegas. Vegas, Vegas right. happened, and then there was no more talk about it after that. Unbelievable. So there are literally millions of people that can benefit from, and it's not abolishing um, the background check process. It, from what I hear, it's just making the ability to purchase a suppressor or a silencer um, about as difficult as purchasing a firearm. You have to pass the background check at the time of purchase, but you know mm-hmm. th- that would be the case, right, with uh, for the National Firearms Act or the Hearing, National Hearing Protection Act. Yes, yes. You'd no longer have to go through the rigorous process of um, complying with the National Firearms Act. Which is, yeah, which is long drawn out and very, very expensive because, you know, the, the, the government will get They're going to get their VIG, right? <laughs> always, always. They have to. That's the bottom line. And they, they never fail to do so, do they? No, no, absolutely not. So, again, it's one thing, you know, to, to actually own it. Um, legally, um, just because you can purchase it doesn't automatically make you legal. So we need to know these things, especially, again, when we go to guns, gun shows, um, it's like a kid in a candy shop. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. I see these you know, people, all the, and they buy stuff. They don't even you know, know what it's for. They're like, okay, I want it. I've been there. I've Maybe been there. <laughs> <laughs> I have a whole kind of like a you know plastic bucket, right? A, a bin uh, uh, of all my extra uh, stuff. Uh, garbage. You know, <laughs> yeah, stuff like I shouldn't have bought it to begin bought with. But win. hey, you know what? Uh, it's part of the fun. Uh, one <laughs> thing I do want to remind our listeners about is that different states will have different laws. So just because you purchase something in your state perfectly lawfully doesn't mean that once you cross state lines, you're also legal. And this goes right along the lines of what we just mentioned about uh, suppressors. You you kind of just went into the mode of Pennsylvania law that you can absolutely lawfully own one should you comply with the National Firearms Act. But other states, that's simply not the case. So uh, be careful about magazines. The big one is magazines. Magazines. Different states have different magazine capacity restrictions. And magazine capacity restrictions... Uh, generally deal with how many rounds the magazine can can hold, right? What's the max possible it can hold, not how many rounds you've got in the magazine. Right, so, and that's why I'm not a big fan of those, uh, you know, those spacers that let you just put 10 rounds in a 15-round magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, I would just rather go on ahead and just purchase magazines that are the correct capacity, or even better yet, if you're traveling around, get you know, get a revolver. Right? right? Travel with a revolver yeah. and learn how to use that revolver and reload it really quickly. You know, come to Philly Firearms Academy. We'll, we'll get you up to speed. That isn't a problem. Well, I think you remember that I got one uh, right around the time when it looked like um, the national reciprocity was going to go through. Although the bill that they put into place would actually cover uh, magazines that were inserted in the firearm, magazines made for handguns. Um, better be prepared than not. Better safe than sorry. Wow. So this episode flew by, Mike. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. We want to thank you all for listening to another episode of Lock, Loaded, and Legal. Come listen to us soon. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal, brought to you by Philly Firearms Radio. For more information and to show your support, visit LockedLoadedAndLegal.com.